Hello and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about King of Scars by Lee Bardugo, which is the first book in a planned duology that further extends the Grishaverse. But before we get into the book, Corinne, what have you been obsessing over this week? So this past week, or I guess the last like week and a half or so, I've read a couple of books by Talia Hibbert, who is a romance novelist and is most well-known or is becoming most well-known now for her Brown Sister series. The first book in that series, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, came out last fall. The second book in that series, Take a Hint, Danny Brown, came out this past June. And then I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy from the publisher, Vianette Galley, of the third Brown sister book, Act Your Age. Eve Brown, I keep saying it wrong because of the name of this podcast, <laughs> but it's Act Your Age, Eve Brown, which comes out in, I believe, March. So I read that over the last week. And then Talia Hibbert has also written a short story, a novella, um, kind of Christmas time novella that I read this past week as well. That is called Wrapped Up in You. It is a Kobo original, which is like a non-Amazon e-reader type service. And I downloaded a couple of, of apps and like had to create a whole new account to get it. And it was only $2 though, but it was super worth it. So Act Your Age, Eve Brown is about... Um, the third, the youngest Brown sister who has had a lot of business interests over the year. And she's kind of like flitted between things. She's never really committed to anything. And her parents basically threatened to cut her off and she gets mad and she leaves town and finds herself in a small town in England and ends up becoming like the chef at a B&B, which is owned by the love interest in the book. What's great about it and what's great about the Brown sister series in general is that in each book, there's a character who's dealing with with something um, in their lives. And in, in the first book, Chloe Brown has uh, chronic pain and fibromyalgia. In the second book, the love interest staff um, struggles with anxiety. And in this book, the love interest um, is on the autism spectrum. Um, and she handles all these issues with real care. And it's great to see that type of representation in romance novels. And I found that book to just be a delight. And I can't wait to buy a physical copy when it comes out in the spring. So that was really good. And then the short novella was just like a really good friends to more storyline about the these friends that grew up together. He went on to move to Hollywood and become a famous superhero movie star, uh, but decides to come back home to England for Christmas and kind of give it his all to get this girl that he's been in love with for most of his life. And it's just a really cute, like 150 page story. So I'm all aboard the Talia Hibbert train. I have not read any of her other stuff. She's actually quite prolific, but like I said, this is the most uh, fanfare she's gotten over the last couple of years with the Brown Sister series. And I would like to maybe over the holidays and I have some time off, like dive into some of her other stuff because she's just very funny, very steamy, a lot of fun. I have also um, read, well, the first two of the Brown Sisters books and I love them. And they are the only ones of Talia Herbert's that I've read. But yeah, um, I love her writing. I love her books. So I should also dive into her very, very extensive backlog. Yeah. I think there's like some funny ones too, like that maybe have some like fancy or magical element to them, which I'm always interested in. Obviously, I mean, we're talking right. about yeah, <laughs> fantasy series on this podcast. So a, a combination of the two would always be interesting. I'll report back if I find All it. All right. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, this week I finally bit the bullet and started watching Queen's Gambit. And mm. everybody was very right and I was very wrong. It was very good. <laughs> and uh, chess is somehow not boring like I thought it was. And so I, I've been, it's a miracle how they do that. I, really, <laughs> I don't know because I, I still know nothing about chess. I'm yeah. sitting here like, oh, yeah, totally. I have no idea what's going mm-hmm. on, but it's so good. It just it grabs you. Um, yeah. And what else? Oh, I'm watching The Crown for the first time, as you Great. know. Brent. Yes. Because um, I've been texting you my... <laughs> my distress at being attracted to Matt Smith for the first time ever and as Prince Philip of all fucking people. So really uh, staggering. I I appreciate your uh, uh you know my my privacy during this difficult time. But, <laughs> yeah, I also read aside from King of Scars, I read To Love and to Loathe, which is the second book by Martha Waters. She wrote To Have and to Hoax. Yes. Um, which was real fun. And uh, To Love and To Loathe is maybe even better. I liked it. It's very cute. Fun little Regency romance romp. So yeah, those are if that's your thing, then yeah. you should read it. That one, it's also an advanced reader copy too. Look at us. Good advanced copies of books. <laughs> yes, I got that one as well uh, from NetGalley. It is not out yet. Yeah, but- comes out also sometime in the spring. I think I, I got that one too. I'm excited to yeah. read it, especially after you said that it was good. All right. So this is our last Grishaverse episode for a while. I'm, I'm kind of sad that it, we're at the end of the road here. Um, I think before we dive in, I think we can say that we will be back, I'm sure, once Rule of Wolves comes out next year. And also when the show comes back, we'll probably do a special episode as well. That has been really the main reason why we cover the Grishaverse here is that we are very excited about the show. Um, We you know, we talked about our issues with the trilogy versus the Six of Crows duology. Honestly, the Six of Crows duology itself, we could have covered by itself. And because really that's a series focuses in on one of the a lot of the goals that we have here for this podcast and what the things we like to talk about. But that doesn't mean we don't like the rest of the extended Grishaverse um as well. And so it has been really fun. I'm kind of sad. But yes. I've been thinking about this series or this universe for like nothing and nothing else for the last month. Uh, but here we are, the end of the line. Yeah, it seriously has been that long. Huh? <laughs> it really has. It's a lot of books too. We read six books in a month and yeah, here we are. But Rule of Wolves is in March as well, I think. So shout out to May? this podcast for helping me get through my uh, Goodreads 2020 <laughs> reading goals. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's definitely helping. Uh, but yeah, so here we are. So I guess as we always do, we'll start with a quick book summary. If you haven't read King of Scars in a while, or again, just want to listen to us talk and want to have an idea of what we're talking about, uh, we will dive in with that. It's approximately six months after the end of Crooked Kingdom. Nikolai Lansov is trying his hardest to bring Ravka back from the ruin of the Civil War, but is facing challenges on all fronts. Most challenging, the fact that a monster lurks inside him, a vestige of what the Darkling did to him in Ruin and Rising. And the monster keeps coming out more and more despite all of Nikolai's efforts to suppress it. The only people who know about this are the Triumvirate, and he relies most heavily of all on his trusted general Zoya Nazielanski. In addition to the threat of the monster and the pressure to marry and secure Ravka's future, miracles keep popping up throughout Ravka, and a new religious cult that venerates the Darkling is getting louder and louder. Led by a monk named Yuri, who is devoted to the Darkling, Zoya and Nikolai set out to examine the spots of these miracles in hopes of finding out more about a ritual which may rid Nikolai of the monster. 
It turns out to be a trap, and Zoya and Nikolai are taken captive by Saints Elisaveta and Juris, who tell them that if Nikolai completes the ritual, it will release them from their immortal prison. While Elisaveta prepares Nikolai for the ritual, Juris teaches Zoya to tap further into her Grisha power. When it's time for the ritual, Nikolai is about to finally vanquish the monster when he realizes that Elisaveta has deceived them. She doesn't want the monster to be vanquished. Instead, she wants the monster, which is a lingering trace of the Darkling's power, to regenerate the Darkling. Elisaveta has tried to kill Juris, but before he dies, he implores Zoya to kill him instead so that she may obtain his power. She does so, then kills Elisaveta. However, the spirit of the Darkling lives on and implants itself in Yuri. Nikolai and Zoya return to Os Alta, where they realize that the Shu have plotted to kill Nikolai and stage the death of their princess in order to incite war with Fyrda. In order to gain control over the situation, Nikolai instead states that he will marry Yuri, the Shu princess, much to Zoya's chagrin. In Fyrda, Nina travels with Adric and Leone to attempt to save Grisha and bring them back to Ravka. She's also there to bury Matthias. Nina's newfound powers post-Param include the spirits of the dead talking to her, and as such, she is called to an area with a factory where the Fyrdans are experimenting on Grisha women and their babies with Param. Nina meets a Fyrdan Grisha named Hannah, who she uses to help attempt to get the Grisha out of Fyrda. Turns out that Hannah is... Jarl Broom's daughter. The end of the book, Nina is able to get the Grisha women out of Fyrda, but decides to go undercover at the ice court with Hannah at her side. And that's King of Scars. A lot happens. A lot does happen. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it that way until you read. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. And yet again, this is like another case where I oversimplify a little bit and don't even talk about our first POV that we get in this novel. So we get Nikolai, Zoya, Nina, but then we also get Isaac, who is a sweet little soldier boy who Nikolai befriended. And when he goes to like trace down the sites of these miracles, he puts this plan in place that if something happens, Zine doesn't come back, that Genio will tailor someone to look like him. And that ends up being Isaac. And so they use Isaac as Nikolai at this ball where they're trying to get a potential marriage match for Nikolai. He ends up falling in love with who he thinks is is it Eerie? Is that how you say it? Eerie? You, you listen yeah, to Yeah, in the in the audiobook it was Eerie. Okay, Eerie. He thinks it's Eerie, but it turns out it's actually a soldier or a guard in Eerie's service who is plotting to kill who she thinks is Nikolai, but it's actually Isaac. And it's actually very tragic because he she kills they him sort of and kills herself in and they love fall in with love. each other for real. Yeah. It's very I, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't just include that in the summary if I was just going to go ahead and just talk about it there. But <laughs> I mean, whatever. I covered it. But I mean, that is, it's helpful to have that POV because it gives us an insight as to what's going on back at the palace while Nikolai and Zoya are off on the road. And then we have this whole separate storyline with Nina. And I, I guess we could kind of start talking about what our thoughts are on how this novel is structured. Because I don't ever really want to advocate for authors like writing more books just to write more books or to have kind of be like a money grab. However, I do think I would not have minded if the Nina stuff was a novella or just a totally separate book, because I think it just sticks out as so different than the Nikolai Zoya and even the Isaac chapters, even though Isaac isn't with them. He's obviously very much more tied he's very to part of their story. Yeah. Um, yeah. A novella is an interesting idea. I think that would have been really, 
really good to have it in that format because you're right. It's it's weird the way that it's structured because I have never in my life thought that I would be uninterested in a Nina plot. Right. Um, in a Nina story. And I found myself like every time it's a Nina chapter, I'm just like, ah, I want to go back to whatever you know Nikolai and Zoya are doing. Yeah. So that was weird. Yeah. It was bad. There's so yeah, there's so much going on in Nina's in Nina's story, and she's going through so much growth of her own and everything. But to have that be like a less interesting part of the book is is wild to me. Yeah, it was better on this reread. So like, and we'll talk about this a lot, but one of the main things I love about this book, I, I much prefer the Nikolai Zoya storyline anyway, but I also really like their relationship and their interactions together. So that just then manifested in every time I like would turn the page and it'd be a Nina chapter. The first time I read it, I was just like, Ugh. like yeah. bring me back to the main action here. So it was time, easier to get involved with the Nina plot. And now yeah. that we, we weren't we're trying to rush to find out what happens with Nikolai and Zoya. Yeah. So. And I, I just, I don't know. And we'll talk about this too in terms of the like themes of the book but you know i think that maybe lee is trying to draw a comparison in like how zoya is channeling grief versus nina but i don't know that it like really fleshed out in that in a way that i can like really see the parallels super well and we'll talk about that but yeah i just i feel like if it had been separate that would have been really interesting it kind of reminded me of i know you have not read this series but the throne of glass series by sarah j moss she has towards the end the second to last book is actually told from one character's perspective and he's like off outside the main actions like book six ends on a cliffhanger and this character is sent like to a different continent to try to find allies for like the final big battle and war that happens in the eighth book and it is kind of frustrating to like get to that point and then you have to read his book before you can get to the last book but it is really helpful to have that separate story and that's all you focused on because if you were trying to do it back and forth like you do here I think you would lose a lot of interest and so I just I had that in my mind as I was looking through it this time I was like that would have been like an interesting way to do it because it doesn't feed in well, I don't really think Nina's story feeds in much at all to the main what I think is the main plot. I mean it's called King of Scars. So like Nikolai's story is the main story, I think, of this book. I'm assuming right, it'll so tie Nina's in. Nina's story feels sort of incidental. Like it's right. not tied in at all to right. Nikolai's story or what's going on. I mean, I think in the future it will be, which is why I think your idea about the novella is is a really good one. Because now that she is undercover in Fyrda and the next book is called A Rule of Wolves and there's potentially going to be Fjordan involvement. There's all this possible building war or continuing war with Fjorda that she is poised to be, um, her plot line is poised to be much more impactful on Nikolai's current story than it is in this book. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like a little frustration, but the good thing about, you know, now we're, we know that. So every time we read these books going forward, like I, I will admit to having just read like the Nikolai and Zoya chapters like on their own and, and they stand on their own. Like they're, yeah, you can read them on, alone, on their own just as you can read the Nina stuff on their own. So it is what it is and we just deal with it going forward. But I guess that's a little bit of a frustration, I guess. I was actually looking at Goodreads and I was like, why did I rate this book five stars? Like it has a lot of issues. I, I don't understand why I did that. And I I, we were just really excited about the end. <laughs> the end, yes. But then I think I also, again, we talked about this last week. We both read the dual, Six Crows duology first. And then I read the trilogy and then I immediately went into King of Scars. And it is 
again, we've talked at length about our issues with the trilogy. It is much better written, I think, overall. You get a lot more of these characters overall than you do in the trilogy. So I think I was just like, ah, a breath of fresh air. This feels more like Six of Crows um, in, in terms of the third-person POV, the multiple POV. We definitely get all that. It's just way less of a cohesive plot uh, mm-hmm. than those books have. So anyway... So, yeah, I think I, I also rated it five stars, and I think I rated it based on the Nikolai stuff because I yeah. really like his story, yeah, um, and his growth, him and Zoya, that whole development. Yeah, I think it's it's all good stuff. Yeah, uh, which isn't again the Nina story is it is interesting in and of itself, and and we'll talk about that now. And I guess it just that, needs to be on its own. I yeah, think. it does. Um, so I guess why don't we start then with talking about how. I guess grief is explored in this book because that is one of the only ties I can really see in terms of Nina's storyline versus the main plot of the book, which is the fact that Nina at this point, it's several months after Matthias's death and she has finally brought him back to Fjorda to be buried. She's carrying his body around. It's been preserved by Grisha Power. Uh, and the first like third of her story, I would say, is her like kind of building up to try to uh, get the courage and find the right spot to like let him go and to, to bury him as were his wishes at the end of Crooked Kingdom. Then on the flip side, we learn so much about Zoya in this book and her backstory and why she made that turn that she did in the trilogy from being one of the Darkling's favorite, one of the people the Darkling relied on the most to turning on him and fighting alongside Alina. We find out about the loss that she's experienced in her life with her aunt who basically saved her from an arranged marriage at nine years old and who died in the village that the Darkling destroyed at the end of Shadow and Bone. And there's, again, I as I said earlier, I struggle to see exactly how each of them, like how that connects other than it's a common thread between the two of them. But I do think how both of them move through it is interesting. What, let me ask you this. What do you think though of how their arcs are handled in comparison to each other? Cause for me, Zoya's process of moving through that grief is more compelling. And I think maybe better done than Nina's what do you think? I, I agree, actually. I think in the beginning, um, Nina's process through the grief is is really good. It's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of depth to it. Her unwillingness to let Matthias go, her her anger and her kind of her nastiness a little bit towards the Fjordans, even though a lot of them deserve it. Um, you know, she made that promise to Matthias that was, you know, that she would give Fjordans a chance. She would try to save them. Uh, she would try to teach them uh, because he was made better by by learning more about the wider world um, through Nina, basically. But yeah, uh, so all of that, her burying him, it was all really good. Reading about Nina crying herself to sleep every night over Matthias just really hard. hurts. Yeah. It hurts real bad. But the second she buries him, it becomes like a different thing. Like she still thinks about Matthias and everything, but it's like they had Nina focus on somebody else almost immediately after burying him. So, like, where is the rest of processing that grief? You know, she processed it up until it took to bury him. And then that was, what, the end of it? That's not really how that works. So I didn't find that too compelling. Um, I think Zoya's uh, ruminations on grief is is a much, it goes a lot deeper. Um, and it goes into how 
this this kind of persona that she's built around herself, this hard edge, it's all a mask for for her grief and her loss and her being afraid to feel anything anymore. And I think that's a that's a stronger story. Yeah, I agree totally. I think that for me, Zoya, there's I'm gonna read this quote. It's from the end when Juris, again, am I saying that right? <laughs> you listen to the I audiobook. That, that's what that's how they said in the audiobook. Okay, good. So we'll go with that. Uh, so when he's dying after this deception by Elizaveta at the end of the book, um, and she is, you know, she's come to think of him as a mentor and he's pulled a lot out of her. And she's as he's laying there dying, she's really thinking about her backstory and her aunt and all all of this trauma and this pain that she's felt. And she says to him, I can't lose you too. And still the wound bleeds, said the dragon. You will never be truly strong until it closes. And she says, I don't want it to heal, Zoya said angrily, her cheeks wet with tears. Below, she saw the version of Nova Karibisk that existed in this twilight world, a black scar across the sands. I need it. The wound was a reminder of her stupidity, of how readily she'd been willing to put her faith in the Darkling's promise of strength and safety, of how easily she'd given up her power to him, and no one had needed to force her down the aisle to make her do it. She'd done it gladly. You and I are going to change the world, he told her, and she'd been full enough to believe him. So for me, that just is such a strong like thesis statement as to who... Zoya is and how this grief has shaped her. She does not ever want to put herself in that position again where she is is so willing to be dependent on another person and put so much faith and trust in another person. And the only thing that keeps her going is this profound Keep that sense wound of open. loss. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, I think that's um, like that goes back to her promises to Nikolai. Like if this dark thing takes me over and she's immediately like, yeah, I will be the first to put a bullet in your brain. And that's, that goes back to that. Like she's not going to put her faith in something that's, that's going to go badly like it did with the darkling. Right. And then I, I think that then why Nina's doesn't story does not work as well for me in that same regard is that I don't feel her processing it in quite the same way. We we see her go through all of these things. She's working really hard to save the Grecian Fjorda. She would have been doing that if if Matthias was alive, I would think. I mean, they had talked about how... He would be there undercover with her. Right. They would be trying to change the world together. So it doesn't feel like she's really doing much differently. Now, and I think that, though, too, have to acknowledge that the potential romance with her and Hannah doesn't really work for me. And I think that we are maybe meant to look at that as being something that pulls Nina from her grief in a lot of ways, but it doesn't work for me for many reasons. I think we should preface it by saying we love some bisexual representation. Great. Love to see it. But something about them does not work for me. And I don't, and it's almost like, not the fact of Hannah herself that doesn't work for me. I think she's a very interesting character. I like the idea of a feared and Grisha who has to hide who she is. And it's like an extra level of, or an extra layer of that deception and that fear. We have is literally the daughter of the commander of the Druskella. Like that is right. But I think what, because it starts to veer into romance, it, it, it just doesn't work for me as well. And 
again, we've talked about this before. I'm a, a shipper till the, the day I die. Like I love nothing more than a good ship. But also, I also find a lot of value in friendships in these stories. And we love Nina and Neja's friends. Why why did this have to go romantic? I think I, I could they could have stayed friends and it would have been super compelling to me. Yeah. Well, my problem well. is not that they went romantic, it's that they were, went romantic now. I right. think if they had had gone romantic in like the next book or you know, towards the end of the next book when she's had more time to process the Matthias thing. But I don't like using a person as as a means of getting over somebody else. Right. Like at least not in in death or whatever. You know, right. that person his head is not like they broke up with you. And and then, right. you know, maybe having somebody else there is, is a way for you to, for you to get past it. But when that person is dead yeah. and your way of just getting over that grief is to immediately get in get involved with somebody else. I don't like that. Um I don't like that for Nina. I don't like that for Hannah. I want them I want that build up to be more. I want more there. Yeah. And I think to, you know, there's no one right way to grieve, certainly. And I don't necessarily have an issue with the time, timing of it or the lack of processing time. What is weird to me is like I said, the first third of this book from Nina's perspective, roughly, is her still trying to deal with Matthias's death in his funeral scene. I'm not going to read it today because I cried enough about Matthias <laughs> last time. <laughs> but that chapter makes me cry my eyes out. It is so beautiful. So to have that in this book and then immediately jump into something else, it's just, it's too much of cognitive dissonance for me That's what to I don't really like jump it into it. So like if, if we hadn't even seen that, that would feel weird too. But like if it had been maybe a short story, we know that Lee likes to write short stories sometimes about characters. Again, if that had maybe been its own separate thing, that would have been a little different because it's in this book. And because we, Nia's only one of four POVs here, but she, her story takes up less percentage of the book than the others. There's so little time there. And then to throw both of those things in, it's like emotional whiplash. I, it is. And I, it, maybe this is just me being selfish. I'm not over Matthias's death, so I don't know how you can. Again, there is no one way to grieve, and I think it is really compelling to see how she is ultimately able to to soldier on. Maybe it also doesn't work. I don't know what you think about this, but like she's being very reckless in a lot of her story. I mean, she's always been that way. She's always been very. Uh, stick to her convictions yeah Yeah. and she's just she's gonna plow ahead and she's gonna do it anyway she's not listening to adric who is her superior officer um out there with her at the time she's just doing things on her own at the end she's like withheld the fact that she's basically uncovered this plot against nikolai so i she's i think the problem there for me is that she's not just being reckless on her own, which is another form of grief. And that's totally fine. But my problem is that she's putting so many other people in danger, like not telling people complete plans, like what she she's planning to do when they get into the factory to rescue the girls. Like she doesn't inform anybody about anything. She's going off on her own to do these crazy things. Even when she buries Matthias, she just wanders out. Like she waits until too late when it's dark and she gets lost in the woods. She would have died if she hadn't found Hannah. So, yeah, yeah, she's she's being reckless, not just with her own life, but with other people's lives, yeah. too. 
I do. I, I mean, I get though where she's coming from. So she does say earlier, you know, she talks about grief and the absence of, of Matthias and what that feels like. This quote is beautiful. The ache of his absence felt like a hook lodged inside her heart. The hurt was always there, but in moments like these, it was as, as if someone had seized hold of the line and pulled. Like, that's beautiful. She does say at one point, too, towards the beginning of the novel, like, what is the point of it all? You save one life only to take another. So at the beginning, you know, they're killing all these other people, like, to try to get Grisha out. And she's feeling a little lost. And I do think then that this ability that she has here to hear the, the spirits of the dead talk to her and guide her the fact that she's able to use that to save large numbers of Grisha and the fact that she's now in this position to kind of go spy inside the ice court gives her that sense of purpose that she was floundering a bit to find at the beginning of that. So I guess that, that does work. And that is a, I guess a compelling look at grief. And, and it's, like I said, it's different. Maybe I just relate to how Zoya's plays out better it's also just admittedly not tied to the death of a character <laughs> that i yeah. loved immensely so i think yeah so again nina we love you we want you to be happy girl i just yeah it, i'm perfectly happy and especially for her to you know i i love that bisexual representation i am totally all for nina having a girlfriend i just think that the development isn't taking the time it needs to. And maybe it will in the next book. Yeah. So we don't know. Right. That's the thing. It's hard to um, talk about any of these characters' stories and their arcs without the second book in the duology. I mean, we did Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom together because we felt that it was not possible to arbitrarily cut off where we talked about those those characters. It's less two stories than it is one story. Correct. And and this probably is, I mean, it's too, we're, we're kind of, we've got a lot of cliffhangers going on here. So we'll be back. We'll revisit it and we'll see what we think about it when Rule Plus comes out. But I think then maybe the next logical place to turn then is into our discussion of Zoya and how much her storyline really does work for us in so many more ways than the new storyline does or just and just how much we really like her as a character in this book and i think the biggest thing for me is her as this kind of different heroine i guess than what we see in a lot of other books yeah she's uh she's spicy yeah she's got a kick to her and i really love that because we don't often get to see these female leaders and protagonists in in roles that are sort of unlikable, and like Zoya is mean. Like she's she's mean. She's rude. She's snappy. She's violent. And for all of these reasons and more, I completely adore her because I like that representation. Not all women are gonna, you know, we don't all fit into certain categories of womanhood, and that Zoya gets to be sharp edged. And a general is something that I really, I really appreciate because she's no less um, compelling for it. She's no less uh, a woman for it, um, no less a potential love interest for it. And I, I really like that. Yeah. I like to, uh, this is a quote from Elizaveta, who she's got some ulterior motives going on for sure. She hasn't made her turn yet, but she says this uh, thing to 
Zoe, which I think really rings true. Uh, She says, most women suffer thorns for the sake of the flowers, but we who would yield power adorn ourselves in flowers to hide the sting of our thorns. And then Zoe thinks to herself, be sweeter, be gentler, smile when you are suffering. Zoe had ignored these lessons, often to her detriment. She was all thorns. So I, I like, though, this idea that she... It is she is a thorn. She is sharper. And, and there's actually one point too when she's ruminating on her like aunt's death and she goes back to the village that had been decimated and she meets this guy who her aunt had saved and he tells her like, smile, beautiful. There's still hope. And she's like, I'm not going to smile. And I was like, yes, I love <laughs> seeing that because in real life, we know our thoughts on having being asked to smile. smile. I hate it. Yeah. Thanks, I hate it. Um, but <laughs> I think that she is she does in a lot of ways, like her external, her hardness, her coldness, it does come from a place of trauma that she's gone through in her life. So it's not like, I don't get the sense that she like came out of the womb like this. I mean, yeah, we know when she was a kid, she, her mom and dad were very poor and they didn't have a lot of affection for her. And she tried her hardest to, well, especially for somebody mom. who's been who, whose entire value, her entire life has been put entirely. <laughs> can I say it one more time? Entire, entire. Um, <laughs> it's been it's been placed on her beauty. Yeah, and that's why she was going to be a child bride. You know, at nine years old, married right. to some rich old dude because she was beautiful, and that's what that's what everybody constantly ruined. Like all men, they see her. Sharp edges and all, and all they can think and talk about is how beautiful she is. And I, I just like that for for that character, for her to be beautiful, but to also not give a shit, right? And to have just all of this sharp armor on that keeps everybody at such a distance. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really compelling. Yeah, it is really compelling. And you know, we read a lot of romance novels. You and I, we read a lot of of stories like this, and there's often male leads who are like this right you have the grumpy love interest mm-hmm. who is only falls soft. in love with the sunshine yeah exactly and it's so nice to see that gender flipped here and part of those stories right is always kind of a little bit of breaking down and finding out why that person is the way that they are so yes she has had some really messed up things happened to her that have kind of turned her into this person. But the person that she is, is so strong, so capable, and she's totally unflinching and unwilling to change who she is for anyone, despite what society's She's unapologetic. Yeah. It's so refreshing to see. I love her POV. Just her, her thinking about through all of this is is so well done. I love this quote from Nikolai. It's such a perfect summation of her. He's thinking about the bizarre phenomenon of her beauty, the way men love to create stories about it. They said she was cruel because she'd been harmed in the past. They claimed she was cold because she just hadn't met the right fellow to warm to her. Anything to soften her edges and sweeten her disposition. And what was the fun in that? Zoe's company was like strong drink, bracing and best to abstain if you couldn't handle the kick. We love a man who appreciates oh. that hardness in his woman and does not try to soften her. Like yeah. we don't want her any other way. She is how she is and he he loves her for it. Right. And I mean, the that statement is not totally off again, not totally off base. Like she has become this person because of the mm-hmm. things that she's gone through. But 
it's a strength. It's not a weakness that she has the shell. She's used it to put herself in a position of power and to make it so that she can never be personally vulnerable again. And also that she can work to save her people, the Grisha people. It's very effective armor. Yeah. And that's, you know, she talks about this several times. And I think one of her other big themes here is power. She thinks about that power is protection, that having that ability to not just be a super strong Grisha, but to hold this power over everyone who interacts with her. I mean, like people are terrified of her all the time. And that is another layer of protection for her and another layer of strength that a lot of other people around her don't have. And it's really, it's really compelling. And then I, in addition to obviously this being sold as a child bride, basically, and this loss of her family, I really loved reading so much about her relationship to the darkling and that idea of putting your faith in one person and what happens when that person uses you and what better motivator than, than that, what better motivator for revenge than that. And that is the only reason I'm maybe excited about the return of the darkling. I was literally just thinking that I was like, it's going to make their interactions in the next book. So fun. Yeah. Just so crunchy. Exactly. Because we get so much more, of of the darkling than we we even did in the trilogy just from her pov i think i think we see that he wanted to do to alina what he did to zoya and what he did to jenya and we see more of jenya's story in the trilogy but we really get more here in terms of how he really kind of groomed zoya Mm -hmm. to be this almost sycophant for him and and how she was just she got it so wrong. And at one point she's listing off all the the people who the Darkling did this to. He did this to Lena. He did it to to Bagra. He did it to Jenya. He ruins people. And Alina chews people up and spits them out. He does. And so I think it will be way more satisfying. And we'll talk about the end, like what our predictions are for the next book. I don't want Alina to come back because she doesn't have these partly because she does not have these same levels of connection to the darkling. And I don't think her being involved and taking him down is going to be nearly as satisfying. She already did that. And he did not wound her or break her in anywhere near the way he did Jenna or Zoya. That is one thing I think will be like really interesting because I think that that is a situation that a lot of people have found themselves in before where you put your faith in the wrong person and it backfires against you. And I think it's just really relatable and it's really compelling. Yeah. When her aunt sends her to Asalta to train to be a Grisha. And she says to her here, they will see the jewel you are inside, not just your pretty eyes. And I think we get even more of of that in this book where she's developing this power within her and, and growing her power. And at the end of the day, she is going to, I can't wait for her to wreak havoc on the world in the next book because it's going to be so good. And I, we're going to talk a little bit more about it later, but Zoya's arc in this book, I think is, Yes. Easily, easily the Perfect. best one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, should we get into uh, Nikolai? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I love him a lot. <laughs> like, what a charm bomb. He's honestly, so charming. It like, never I love to ends. see how that kind of wears down Zoya's like 
hard edges, you know, like how, how it's hard to be so consistently mean and rude to somebody that's just, he doesn't, it does not hurt him at all. Like she stabs and he, it does not puncture. I just, I love their, their dynamic. I think it's, it's really fun. Yeah. It's, I mean, banter and mutual pining is like, what is at the heart of their and relationship? It's, it's so peak. It's so peak in this it's book. So I good. love it. But ultimately, so obviously Nikolai is a charm bomb and we'll talk about his his journey through this book in a little bit because I also think I find it very compelling as well. But what I, I read that quote about him and his thoughts on Zoya and what I just really love, and we've talked about this in some other books, we talked about it, I know, in the Scorpio races where there's a quote um, where Puck says something about John Kendrick, but most of all, he respects me. And I, I think that's the most special thing of all. Mm-hmm. It, that's like the same thing we're getting here. Nikolai just totally respects and is into Zoya for exactly who she is. She tells him at one point where he asks her about the the story behind getting her amplifier. And she says, you know, um, stories are earned. And he she eventually does tell him, but he isn't put off by that. He wants to be the one to earn that those stories. He wants to be able to get to be the person that she trusts not to change her but he wants to be as worthy as he thinks and knows that she deserves someone to have and right we love to see that's (laughs) that's you put that in such a good way because it's exactly it like and like okay yes or no Nikolai has a competence kink Mm-hmm. Right. Because Zoya is just like so highly competent. He's made her his general. She is his right hand. He trusts her above everybody. And and yeah, never expects her to to be softer or to be anything but what she is. And he like you said, he he strives to be worthy of her attention, really. Yeah. And that is it's just a great position to see any guy in, but particularly the king of a country. Mm-hmm. Like it's incredibly validating to see someone like Nikolai be into someone like Zoya and respect her and want her for exactly who she is. I love it. But he does it all with his continued Nikolai charm. His trademark Nikolai charm. It's, it's, it's so fucking, I'm just going to read this one quote because it made me laugh aloud both times I've read this book. Uh, and he says something like, I'm fairly sure you're trying to frighten me, said Nikolai, reaching out a finger to touch the tip of the thorn. I'm not sure why, but may I suggest a spider wearing a suit? Why a suit? <laughs> asked Zoya, frowning. Why not just a spider? Where did he get the suit? How did he fasten the buttons? Why does he feel the need to dress for the occasion? <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. I, I was like, they're like in like peril. They're like trapped by these <laughs> saints at this point. And right, they, they've like literally crossed to some other dimension or I something. Know. And he's over here, you know, cracking wise. And you, you love you love him for it. It's so good. But then on top of that, we do get a lot of really good uh, journeying from him in this in this book. He obviously has this monster within him, which is. And he acknowledges this too. Like it, it is a metaphor for his as well as for his own internal self doubt that he has about himself and his ability to rule, which I find really compelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he like his, the whole process that he goes through when he is uh, fighting the monster at the end after they perform the ritual 
And he's thinking about a, the fact he's essentially a pretender. He is a pretender to the throne. Yeah. He's a, he's not a Lansov. He's a bastard. He, he has all the stuff that he's going on, but as he's going through that process uh, at the end, he is, he's thinking to himself, I'm Nikolai Lansov. I have no right to my crown, but each day he might endeavor to earn it. If he dared to continue on with this wound in his heart, if he dared to be the man he was, instead of praying to return to the man he'd once been, maybe everything the monster said was true. All Nikolai had done or would do for his people might never be enough. A part of him might always remain beyond repair. He might never be a truly noble man or a truly worthy king. In the end, he might be nothing more than a good head of hair and a gift for delusion, but he knew this much. He would not rest until his country could too. And he would never, ever turn his back on a wounded man, even if that man was him. Great stuff. It's so good. I was just thinking while you were reading that about how, you know, the Six of Crows duology and and this duology, now it's so much about these broken people that come together and uplift each other and and together strive forward to like overcoming those those like traumas of theirs. And it's really, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And I really found his backstory too, that we get more of in this book really compelling as well. The, Mm -hmm. this story that his, he's kind of always a troublemaker growing up. Yeah. Dominic, poor Dominic, who they hire to come. He's another student boy. Yeah. Literally like if Nikolai misbehaves, they'll take it on on Dominic. They become friends despite this. And Nikolai turns his act around to prevent Dominic from getting harmed. Then his awful brother finds out about their friendship and sends Dominic to the front to be a soldier for Ravka and Nikolai. And and fodder. Yeah, literally. He uses that then to completely become who we know as Nikolai to learn how to charm the pants off people to get what he wants, to to educate himself, to have the skill set to engage in these conversations with meaning with different people that he wants something from. And he, he does all of that and actually goes to fight in the war and fights alongside, um, alongside Dominic and, and Dominic ultimately dies. And it's not enough to save Dominic, but all he wants to do is make sure that his family is not left in charge of Ravka because they will destroy it just like they destroyed Dominic's life and they destroy everything that they touch. And so that's exactly what you want from a ruler. Yeah. But despite and that, he, he, I love that he eventually figures that out by the end. It's not, it doesn't matter if he's a bastard or if he doesn't have the blood or whatever to run this country. What matters is that he's got the intentions and the heart and the courage and the love to do it. Yeah. And even if he can't destroy this monster inside him, he will still be the best that he can be for his people and it's really nice. I like it. He's a good boy. He is a good boy. Are there any other really big themes, thoughts, ideas? Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Yuri and his, his fanaticism for the darkling, Mm. his utter dedication to this man that um, as all evidence indicates was horrific, genocidal, murderous, terrible person. Um, it, It reeks of, that like me too denial from like fanboys mm. of like these big actors that, you know, despite the overwhelming evidence of sexual assault and misconduct, they stand by their man, so to speak. And it is gross and I don't like it at all. There also is a moment where he's literally talking to victims 
of this man and telling them that their disfigurements are blessings. That is so fucking gross. Yeah. I, I, I just, every time I read it, I'm just like, I will walk into this book myself and fucking kill you. I hate, I hate it. I don't yeah, like it. It's, it's really bad. And we talked about this a little bit, I think on our trilogy episode when we had Aubrey here, but you know, this idea of, and we'll talk about this when we get into like our predictions going forward, but why we felt the need to come back to the Darkling and you know, some people, like we talked about the fandom, like really was pushing for the Darklings, his redemption in a lot of ways. And at first when I started reading this, I was like, really, we have a cult of Darkling supporters. But I think exactly what you said. I think Lee is savvy enough to kind of put people in their place here when it comes to the Darkling, because this is a, a really interesting vehicle to show just how fucked up everything the Darkling did was. Now, there are moments as well where like Yuri and Nikolai are talking about the Darkling and even Nikolai admit he had some good thought. I mean, I agree. Like he he wanted Grisha to be safe. I get all of that. But he did all these other things and you need to recognize that and you need to not bring it up into his victims over and over again. So I, I do appreciate I hate I hate Yuri as character and I hate what he stands for. I do appreciate that th- his character does serve to show what a piece of shit the Darkling was. Right. And it's it's good to have conversations about that type of thing. Like, uh, how much are you willing right. to accept? Like, what kind of bad behavior are you willing to accept in your idols? I think right. is an important conversation to have with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yuri, he kind of, he reminds me a lot of those, like, uh, serial killer fangirls. Mm. Not the ones that are, like, interested in serial killer history and interested in, you know, in true crime and stuff like that. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been that person myself. But I'm talking about the ones that are, like, Ted Bundy is so fucking hot. Yeah. I, you know, if he were alive, I would, you know, and I'm, that is... There, there's something broken there. Like, the, yeah. no, and there's something broken in Yuri for him to just be so devoted to such a monster. Yeah, yeah, it's it's frustrating, but at least there again, at least there's a, an acknowledgement of how terrible he, it is. A good vehicle to was. have those conversations. Yeah. Any other big topics? Anything like that we want to go into before we dive into our superlatives and then our predictions for Rule of Wolves? Let's do it. All right. Let's start with favorite quote. Do you have one? I do. I have a couple. So this one is from Nina. And she says, if men were ashamed when they should be, they'd have no time for anything else. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Retweet. (laughs) Retweet. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Um, Here's a good one. Uh, I think this is when Nikolai is, is... kind of wrestling with that internal, like literal internal demon of his. Um, And he says, remember who you are. Nikolai knew he was a king who had only begun to make mistakes. He was a soldier for whom the war would never be over. He was a bastard left alone in the woods and he was not afraid to die this day. I love my good boy. He's a good boy. It's so good. It's very powerful. Yeah. I feel like I already, it's hard. There's a lot, a lot of really good ones. I feel like I already read some of them here. I, and another just, Funny Nikolai moment. I like when Elizabeth says to him, the Thornwood is a path. You must walk alone, boy king. He goes, but it's a very arduous path. Who will carry my snacks? Just and this like, is when he's trying to keep uh, uh, Zoya with him, right? Yeah, yeah. He does want to. <laughs> he's so scared 
he wants to be there. That's actually great. Where like uh, Yuri comes to get him, and he's like, "Okay, where's Zoya?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, Commander Navaselinsky was not requested." And he was like, "She never really is, but I always feel better when she's there." Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I think probably my favorite quote is the strong drink one. Yeah. About Zoya, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. Favorite character and favorite character arc. This is really hard because I I love Zoya and Nikolai in almost equal measure um, for, for favorite character. And they both have really good arcs here. Um, Nikolai kind of contending with that literal and figurative inner demon of his. But Zoya really, I think she's got to take both for me. Um, Fair. Zoya's arc especially, I think is clearly the best one. Yeah, I agree. She learns so much about herself and when her amplifier breaks and she has to kind of contend with that and how that makes her feel. She were, she wore that as, as kind of an armor too, like a protection, an insurance that her power was always going to, you know, come for her. But through that, she learns so, so much more about the Grisha powers through Jaris uh, or Juris. Uh, I forgot his name right now, but um, <laughs> she learned so much from him. And also, I think it's it was kind of proof that for all of her sharp edges, she is still opening herself up to to love and to being vulnerable because she doesn't know him for longer than what, a couple of weeks that they're there. Mm-hmm. And she's devastated by his death. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I love my girl Zoya. She's so good. It's funny, you know, I'm sitting here. So last week I said Kaz was my favorite character and Inej was my favorite character arc. I think there are a lot of similarities between Zoya and Kaz. And then also Inej and Nikolai in terms of their arc and their journey. I mean, you know, Inej is struggling with who she's had to become and whether or not she is is still a good person and is is able to be forgiven. Nikolai is kind of going through the same process internally with himself. Like, is he good enough? Is he going to uh, be worthy of of being king of Ravka? Is he going to be capable of doing that? Um, and then Zoya and Kaz have a lot of similarities in terms of trauma, be- making them into who they are and what that means for them. But I think I'm going to go the opposite here, though, and say that my favorite Character is Nikolai. It's so close, though. And then Ark is Zoya. It could go either way, though. Yeah. Uh, Zoya's Ark is is incredible to me. I think it is, out of all of the characters we've gotten POV character development from in these books, so all the crows, um, I think other than other than Kaz, I think her her backstory and the way it's laid out and how it has turned her into who she is is the most well done for me out of all of them and is very just how she, again, like you said, how, where she gets to by the end of the book and how she, and I'm so excited to see how it's going to continue in to the next book as well. It's, I think it's just really well done. I just, because Nikolai like makes me laugh and smile so much. And because I love him throughout every book that he's in, I have to give him a favorite character, but it could go either way. Honestly, love him. Love these two. Yeah, he's he's like a little burst of sunshine on every page that he's yeah. on. Even when things are going to shit, he is there and he's going to put a smile on your face. Yeah, so. he's great. We love we love him. Yeah, we do. I want to give a shout out briefly because again, we didn't talk about him to, enough to Sweet Isaac, who who is one of my other favorite characters in this book. He just really like loves this girl who he thinks is the shoe princess is not as um, eerie 
And Poor he Isaac. Just, <sighs> just not long for this yeah, world. I just want to give a little in memoriam to Isaac because it is so sweet to watch his story unfold and it's so sad at the end. So shouts to him. He's my favorite like new person we meet in this story. So yeah. Um and then favorite scene <laughs> moment. I'm going to start first by okay. saying that yours, I think, is my favorite swoonworthy moment because it is the easiest, like, distilled down moment of swoon. My actual... So why don't you read that? Which one is that one? The first one? The first one. Okay, yeah. So it's Yuri when he comes in and he's telling Jenya that her scars and mutilation is a blessing from the Darkling. And she very politely... Tells him absolutely fucking not. And then David, who is so quiet and so reserved and never really has any kind of input in any way. Uh, he says, just a moment. And he, he says, if you upset my wife again, I will kill you where you stand. And it's such a great moment for somebody that's so reserved to like really come through and be like, no, yeah. fuck you. That's my wife. I will fuck you up. Yeah. And then like, Jenya's like, David, you've never... Th- threatened to murder anyone for me he before. Saw her <laughs> and also he is reading during this whole confrontation with Yuri and he like puts his finger in the page to hold a spot and then looks up and was like if you upset her again I'll kill you where you stand and then as as Jenny is like oh my gosh that was so wonderful he's like oh have I not like oh like and he immediately turns back to reading <laughs> so that is probably like my favorite swoonworthy moment if i were to extrapolate one moment and set it forth as as evidence of swoon it's that moment because it's just it's adorable and it's for me impossible to distill my actual like favorite thing that makes me swoon most in this book which is the entirety of everything that happens with me <laughs> so just yeah. every moment that they share yeah yeah i can't like Every interaction they have. I can't really pick one. I do like this moment. And this actually might be my favorite quote, too. I love this one, too. When uh, Zoya tells Nikolai the story of the amplifier. And in, in, at the end of it, he thinks, in that moment, he wished things might have been different. That he might not die tomorrow. That he could be led by his heart instead of duty. Because Zoya was not kind and she was not easy. But she was already a queen. It's good. <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Oh, man. You have a good yeah. one, too. Yeah. It. All right. So um, I think this is when Elisabetta is giving Zoya a chance to run off because she's like, you know, Elisabetta is like, my deal is with Nikolai. You're a Grisha. I don't want to hurt you. And Zoya says, my king lies bleeding. I am his subject and his soldier, and I come to fight for him. And yes. And then I have one more. And this is from Nikolai. And he says, I would not beg Zoya to say it was not, or sorry, he would not beg Zoya to say it was not in his nature to plead with anyone. And that was not the pact they shared. They did not look to each other for comfort. They kept each other marching. They kept each other strong. So he would not find another excuse to get her talking again. He would not tell her he was afraid to be left alone with the thing he might become. And he would not ask her to leave the lamp burning a child's bit of magic to ward off the dark but he was relieved when she did it anyway. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> it really shows like a level of understanding between them and what each other needs. And it's a really good example of, like I said, Zoya is like the love interest. I love in a lot of books that is just like kind of cold and cut off, except for the one person that she saw for. And the person she saw for is Nikolai. We see it there and she leaves the lamp on. 
We mm-hmm. see it when it's just from like the very first chapter when she, he's like the monster has escaped and he has to, she shave, saves him from the sheep farm that he's at. And he's like shaking terribly afterwards and she, he can't do his buttons and she does the buttons for him. It's so domestic. And it is so soft. Yeah. It is really soft. I love it. But then also in addition to these moments of softness and kind of like longing that they have for each other, she has that wonderful moment too, where she like thinks about like how, like whether someone like Nikolai could ever love someone like her, which is really great. But then there's a great moment too, which is just like the perfect little like snapshot of who they are together, which is when the, they're like captured by the saints or whatever. And they're, they're, tricked uh into going up in their like different realm with them and uh it goes zoya get down nikolai shouted lunging for her like hell she muttered and knocked him into the sands bracing before him (laughs) with her feet planted and her arms raised like that's just like exactly who they are they're both badasses they're both gonna cover each other whenever they could it's just it's great and then the end hmm. When, oh, and when he announces his that he's going to be engaged to Ari, and she has that moment of like, she, you know, that she was surprised to feel that pang of, of like jealousy or whatever it was. She couldn't really, she didn't really have it in her to think about it too much or to identify it, but it was definitely, you know, like heartache, jealousy. I'm really, yeah. really interested to see how that yeah. develops. Yeah. Uh, so good. well, I think then that's a good spot. Then let's yeah. let's get into some predictions. Is so what we're going on. We did ask for some emails if you had any, and we did get one. I'm gonna read it. It's from my. Friend. <laughs> that's really good. It's from my friend Jenna, who's a listener of the pod. Uh, she is someone who every time Tasia recommends me a book, I then tell my friend Jenna about it, and then she reads them all too. So it all comes full circle. But <laughs> this is her email. Dear Actia Age, here are my thoughts, theories, and musings about Rule of Wolves, which I keep accidentally calling Dances with Wolves. Side note, is Kevin Costner still alive? I'm only going to go with my most outrageous theories. Please take pity on me. I have not read King of Scars since the Tiger King era of quarantine. I'm worried Nikolai will die at the end. This dude loves country. Zoya is hashtag my queen, but Nikolai will never love anything more than Ravka. Sacrificing himself for his country, so on brand. Also, what's Endgame for those two? She's an all-powerful Grisha dragon badass that will live up for eons, and he's a human king with great hair and a normal lifespan. And honestly, knock off 15 years because being king is stressful. I would die for both of them and their relationship happily, but realistically, there's a lot of obstacles for their happily ever after. Maybe the only way to save Ravka is if he totally gives into the monster, then Zoya has to kill the monster slash him. Oh shit, that would be dark scratch that. But then what if Zoya becomes queen after he dies? This also takes care of the whole baby looks a lot like the mailman parentage issue. And she goes on to say, the Darkling is, was, and will always be trash. Seek help if you think otherwise. There will be no redemption arc because if I say it enough, the universe will make it true. There will be a happily ever after for Nina and Hannah. Like I'm bored already by this subplot, but Lee owes Nina after the knife to the goddamn heart that was Matthias's death. Possibly an early betrayal by Hannah, then but then is redeemed slash works as a secret double agent. Honestly, I don't remember a lot about how their story ended at King of Scars. So all of this could be way off. So those are some interesting theories to 
start off on. And very upsetting theories. Yeah, very upsetting theories. Although, because they are very, like, I, I could totally see that. Yeah. So I, let's start with like the big one as to like death in this book, because this summer Lee was tweeting about World of Wolves and she said, there is kissing in this book. There is death in this book. There are cameos in this book. There are twists in this book. There are monsters of every variety in this book. I'll leave it at that for now. So I'm nervous as to who's going to die. Like in the trilogy, we didn't, I mean, the Darkling died, whatever. We didn't really have any like huge deaths. I mean, like, uh, what's his name? Died. Osric. The cat guy. The cat guy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I like loved him and I can't remember his name. <laughs> On cat was the cat. Mm. Anyway. So like, but no like big character dies. And then we have like Matthias dies. So we know we're not, she's not afraid to like totally rip the rug. rug from under. Yeah. <sighs> um, I, I don't want it to be Nikolai. I think that makes a lot of sense for him to die for God and country and all that. Uh, I would be devastated along with Zoya. And uh, you'd have to fly out here and uh, pick me up off of my bathroom <laughs> floor uh, where I, I will be lying wearing a ball gown for some reason. Um, I know. But uh, yeah, so that that would be real, real upsetting. I think, I mean, death, it would have to also be the darkling for sure. Like for um, real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Please. Um, um, because a redemption or no, he's got to go. Yeah. He's He's got to go because it's just going to like just at uh, the apparat, please. Oh, God. For the love of God, take him away. He is yeah. so boring. I hate yeah. these overly religious fanatic types in yeah. stories. Just no, he can stop. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm reading too much into this was as I was reading and we have a lot of like language and rumination from Nikolai though, where he's like, I'm the monster the monster is me. And we know that the monster is still within him at the end. He hasn't told anyone about it yet. But then there's also this whole ritual he has to undergo where he has to like pierce himself with a thorn through the heart. And then after I got this email from John, I was finishing reading and there's that quote from Zoya about how she was all all thorns and then it just made me nervous like is this just symbolism and and metaphor from lee like kind of foreshadowing like zoya killing nikolai yeah oh god i can't <laughs> I, just, <sighs> I just like shuddered <laughs> don't uh, i don't well let, let's go so for the super happy um wayne's world ending where the he, the monster and nikolai merge in a more Nikolai in charge in control kind of way where this this gives him extra powers kind of like um, uh, Zoya's dragon thing and so they can both have extended lifetimes and Nikolai has this power now that he is in control of and everybody lives happily ever after. God, I would love it. That'd be great. That'd be great. (laughs) I mean, I think there is no way in which we don't get some sort of ending that doesn't result in Zoya being on the throne in some way, shape or form. I mean, she plots that in the, in the, in the trilogy, there's like a little mention of Zoya being queen. There's a lot of discussion here in this book with Juris thinking that perhaps Ravka needs a ruler more like her. And I, I love that. I mean, part of, and part of the whole thing with their relationship in this book is that, she doesn't think that she is what Nikolai needs. He needs some like pretty little thing to play hostess 
for all the diplomatic things they have to do and things like that. And she doesn't think that she is the right person for that. But I think what Nikolai does need, and I think he's on the path to realizing that is that he needs a partner, a true partner there. Ravka is always going to be divided into two different things itself as a country as a whole. And then it's status as this haven for Grisha and not even a haven. Like the normal people don't really like Grisha, which is why also Zoya thinks like they'll never accept a Grisha queen, but they do have this strong center of Grisha power. And you, you can't just kind of ignore that. It has to be, equal in some way equal representation in yeah. their politics so i think that's a really good point yeah so i Zoya's never going to be like the demure little queen that nikolai thinks he needs but i don't think that's what robka needs either so i i know she's going to be in charge in some way whether that's with nikolai ho- hopefully with nikolai i'm, yeah. I'm going to put that positivity in the world it's with <laughs> nikolai uh so then i think then what's interesting Oh, no, I was gonna say, go ahead. What's interesting, though, is about the title of the book, right? So originally right. I was like scared about what that meant because wolves are so strongly associated with Fyrda. And we also have the book cover now, which has like the tree that Nina, that looks like Jal, the god of Fyrda, but also that Nina uh, made out of bones at the end of this book. But I've been thinking about it more in terms of the fact that we know Nikolaus Fyrden. Like, really, his dad's feared in. So, like, wolves, like, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, that Nikolai's not in charge anymore. And then, like, on the cover of the book, the top left corner is what looks to be, like, the Lansov, like, eagle. And then the top right corner is a dragon, which we know is Zoya now. There, there you go. So, I'm like, these are, I'm like, am I deluding <laughs> myself? I don't know. And then there's two wolves on the bottom. So, I'm just, I don't know. Like, Ooh, I, I I like to think that's a positive sign about something. I, at first, rule of wolves, I was like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't. Well, and get it's it. interesting because it can be referencing a lot of things, like the dagger that the shoe used to the, the shoe guard uses to stab Isaac slash pretend Nikolai has the wolf wolf head dagger because of you know they're trying to frame the Fjordans oh, yeah, for yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Plus, there's the other Fjordan, um pretenders to the throne to the Ravkin throne there are a lot of things that rule of wolves can can represent here which i think is is it makes for really fun yeah yeah what, what are words i can't think of words right now. <laughs> <laughs> a really fun um there's multiple re- meanings lots of lots of possibilities yeah yeah so then let's talk about cameos and then the last thing i want to talk about i think is the darkling um yeah Capital so Cam- <laughs> uh, cameos for sure in Nez, right? Because we have that tweet from Lee. Somebody had asked her if we were ever going to see a Nez with her boat. And she said, absolutely. And yeah. she also called out cameos for this book. I think Inej for sure, mm-hmm. probably in league with Nina to help get Grisha out of Fjorda. Yeah, that'd be great. And mm-hmm. then I'm really convinced that we are going to get Jasper. In this book, after rereading the whole series. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So when I read, when I first read this book, it was a couple years after I had read Six of Crows and I did not at all remember about Jesper's mother and how she died pulling poison from another Grisha mm-hmm. and, and that this Grisha is very obviously Leone who is with Nina. So Jesper and, and this girl, she's taken on 
um, Jesper's mother's last name. She's taking on like she wears gems like uh, amethyst in remembrance of Jesper's mother. I think they obviously have to meet, right? Yeah, I really think so. And then that in combination with the fact that the last in the last conversation, the last chapter or second to last chapter, I guess, of Crooked Kingdom, Inej says to Kaz that Jasper has agreed to train as a fabricator, but it might take a trip to Ravka because they don't know if they can find one there. So I, more interesting to train under than Leone, the girl who lived because his mother gave up her yes. life. Yes. Also, I would watch or I would read a whole, I said this before, I would read a whole like David and Jenya book of them just being like adorable, but I would also read like someone write a fic of David and Jenya and <laughs> Jesper and Wiling going on a double date in which they talk about fabricator things together, uh, Jesper and Jenya, and then David and uh, Wylan are just like talking about bombs and like <laughs> science things. Would love it. So I, I think that would be really interesting. And like these characters have to all come back together. I refuse to believe that Nina is just in Fierda this entire time. Like, I don't. I think the ending set up sets it up for her to come back. But you know that I think will be the catalyst then to see a lot of these characters come back together if they i am not expecting a Kaz cameo and i'm trying to keep my expectations in check with respect to that but if we do see an edge and she doesn't say something about Kaz or like confirm right, we right. they're like maybe a thing i'm not gonna be pleased i already know i'm like order a physical copy of this book but because i have no chill i will also get the ebook so it can download at midnight and i can immediately begin right. before my physical copy comes but if there is no mention of kaz i'm gonna like chuck my kindle cups <laughs> so if you can if you're listening lee and you can change that now if you need to you have a few months Wait, you still have a chance yeah. Uh, so, no, I did appreciate all of the the Kaz references in this book. Oh yeah, uh, Nikolai talking about like a certain thief in in Ketter Dam that taught him lock, lock picking. It was all yeah. very heartwarming. It was it was good to see and like yeah, I think like Zoya like ruminates on him too and thinking that he's just kind of this. She's all they're all trash. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, there's some respect there. I see it. Yeah, yeah. So then. Let's talk then, I guess, about the big reveal at the end. Mm -hmm. <sighs> the Darkling. <laughs> <laughs> I was really mad when I read this the first time because I hate I was so mad about. <sighs> I actually now I'm come I've come to terms with it a little bit, and I have some reasons why I've come to terms with it. I actually was just listening yesterday to um binge mode podcast. They're currently doing the Marvel cinematic universe and they were covering the captain america civil war movie which has some big reveals in terms of like infiltration of this like evil organization hydra into shield they're supposed to be the good guys blah 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 and they were talking about an interview with the director kevin feige of or like the executive of marvel about like who they chose to like be the moles or like the the spies within the organization and he was talking about how important it is to have someone that the audience knows to make that twist be powerful otherwise yeah. it's just like i don't know who this is and so with like that in mind i don't know that there would be any other more compelling villain 
than the darkling. And that I, I've, I guess I've guess I've come to terms with that. And it's, but it's frustrating to me because m- the most interesting part of this book to me is not any of the Grisha stuff. It's like the political stuff. And I want more of that. I think that's what also makes Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom more compelling because it's interpersonal conflict. Right. Like, yes, they are doing this, these heists, but it's really for their own benefit and to save mm-hmm. themselves. It's different and harder to find these kind of like, let's save the world stories as compelling. But so for that reason, I'm still frustrated by the Darkling. But if we're going to go down that path, I don't think it would be nearly as compelling to have a different villain. So I like exactly because I think the Darkling is going to provide a lot of really crunchy um, scenes. Yeah. um, Yeah. With with everybody because he's got so much to 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 account for and yeah. to answer to and i think it's going to make uh, the conflict a really really compelling one so yeah and i do i i like i i have darkling fatigue like i have apparat fatigue yeah. but he's at least more interesting than yuri <laughs> he's more interesting than yuri and as i said before and like you just said now the fact that he has people that he's had like really true conflicts with is going to be really interesting to see mm-hmm. how that, I mean, the end when he's like, all my friends are like, Oh, it is like a chilling moment. Like it, it is. Yeah. It is a really good moment. But that is why I don't want, as I said before, I don't want Alina to come back. Like, what is she going to do? It's not going to be anywhere near satisfying if she has anything to do with it because she is already had her moment with the darkling and when she thought she killed him she's not the one who still has to come to terms with things with him so i would like that not to be a path that we go down if we go down yeah. it we go down it. but what is she gonna do she has no powers like she, what, is she, what role yeah. will she play I hope well we and i was thinking in the beginning that like it would be really weird if the darkling had no interest in alina anymore because she was so much of his focus before but now that i think about it alina doesn't have power anymore and if it's true what we think what we think that about the darkling, his interest in Alina coming entirely from her power. Mm-hmm. If that's true, then he has no interest in her whatsoever anymore. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I, I think at this point, my biggest frustration with it, it's like, I've come to terms with it. I really don't like the whole like subterfuge with his body thing. It feels like very lazy. Like why did that, if he wasn't going to end up in his own body, like what did why did we need him back like that's not his body is not like alive still like why did it need to like go in that vessel especially when he's changed his appearance over years and years which yeah. i need to say right now obviously they won't do this on the tv show but like it's gotta be ben barnes forever like grief or shadow bone producers if you're listening to me you don't ever change up <laughs> it's like i don't oh, okay. want him to change but they're, they're not complete imbeciles yeah i know do that. <laughs> But I, so that part just like makes me mad because I'm like, okay, we already did one body swap route with Alina. Do we need another one? But I, I do think it will be really interesting. But again, I am most interested in some of these things that are happening on the political front. War with Fjorda, the shoe breathing down their neck. I, that's all way more fascinating to me. So I'm really interested to see mm-hmm. where that goes. And I think that's what's kind of good about... It could be good about Nina going into the ice court, right? She's in a prime place to spy. And that should be more of that interpersonal, like subterfuge versus power, like Grisha power. It's to me like how Six of Crows is, yes, it's about the Grisha because you're trying to stop the spread of Param, which affects them. But like, it's not 
like you're fighting against a powerful magical being, which I think is really what makes that much more interesting and compelling. So that I'm, I have high hopes for all that. What I do not want to come from that storyline, because I hate this as well, is a change in heart from Jarl Broom to me, because his daughter is Grisha. To no. me, that is like when men say, like, I have daughters and therefore, like, when I agree now with mention of being sexually assaulted. I'm like, if yeah. we get that, I will be so mad. Yeah, no, I don't that's think we will. Us. Yeah. I, I have confidence that we won't, but I just need to, like, put that out there because he needs to finally die, too, because Dang, they keep letting him oh go. Oh, my God. He's like, like stop a saving cat. this dude's Nine life. Lives. He just keeps doing the worst things possible with it. When he's given another chance, yeah. I don't just stop. And again, it is the same thing that I was kind of talking about before. It's like you have to have these kind of same villains come back again and again to make it compelling. I and I do think too. Lee has said that she views this as like the culmination of the Grish for us. So I, I don't think that necessarily means that she's never going to write in it again. But it's definitely closing off. Of it's going to be like a the big true narrative cap arc. on. Yeah. Yeah. So makes sense that we're going to get rid of all these people once and for all. This book could be like 700 pages. There's so much. Now, I'm now thinking it should be because it's like, right? It has to yeah. be. That's when I wish that there was a separate Nina book. I will buy more books, Lee. Like, why couldn't you have done that? It's fine. But I am excited for Rule of Wolves. It'll be fun to come back to this world and see how some of these things play out. I'm, for the love of God, we better have the show before that, but we'll see. Really expecting a Shadow and Bone trailer this month, though. I I really want it. I mean, if wanting it hard enough means that I expect it's actually going to happen, then yes. All I want for Christmas is a Shadow and Bone trailer. In the meantime, let's talk about where we're going next. We have just one more episode left for the year, right? Before we take a little holiday break and get geared up for our episodes uh, to kick off 2021. But Teja, why don't you tell everyone what we are reading next week, despite the fact that <laughs> it's it is not, not young adult. <laughs> Um, well, like we've said in the past, this is our podcast and we do what we want. So we are just going to pick a book we really, really, really love, despite it not technically being young adult and in fact being far too spicy to be a young adult book. This is Casey McQuiston's excellent Red, White, and Royal Blue. It is about the son of the female president of the United States falling in love with the one of the princes of England. Yep. And it is extremely fun. I cannot wait to talk about it. Yeah. This is our uh, holiday gift to ourselves here. So we just want to talk it about really this. It really is. We like, really love it. And it does have a lot of this, the themes and stuff that we like to talk about here on this podcast. It is often mistaken for young adult. Like, I think just by looking at the cover, you open this book up, though, is not young adult. I think we talked before. I think it's technically categorized as new adult, new which adult, is like yeah. young 20s. So, mm-hmm. whatever. It's, it, it's essentially just an expansion of the young adult, but with sex. With sex. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. And we're also going to next week kind of do a little bit of a year-end wrap-up, talk about some things, and particularly books that we really liked this year, uh, kind of our own uh, end-of-year uh, superlative list there. Uh, in the meantime, Tasia, where can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. 
And I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at ActiaAge. Our email address is ActiaAgePod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, anything, we'd love to hear from you. And then if you wouldn't mind rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, we would greatly appreciate that. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye, friends. Bye.